Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rudeutschen. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is the Australian chef Sky Gingle, who brings what she likes to call a certain feminine sensibility to her cooking. After making a name for herself with Petersham Nurseries in West London, she opened the restaurant Spring in Somerset House, which, as well as being just about the prettiest place to sit in London, has become a beacon for eco-aware cooking with its biodynamically sourced produce and a pledge to go plastic-free by the end of 2018. We stayed at my brother's house and um, he lives at, he has a house in North Bondi and we'd get up and we'd walk down to the beach at sort of 6, 6.15 and the whole of Sydney are, are, are awake. So there are queues at the coffee shops and yeah. people are swimming in the surf and walking the Bondi to Bronte walk and so every morning we just walk from Bondi to Bronte which is about five kilometres kind of there and back and then we swam in the ocean, which was the end of summer, so it was really warm, like a surf beach in Australia, so they c- it can be kind of like quite warm. And especially at the beginning of this um, summer, it's quite cold. So hot, and I was saying to someone the other day, you'd like put your head under the, um, under the salt water, and you'd literally feel like your body, like, like all of a sudden like sprung 20 feet in the air, and you just felt like a sorbet. Like there were, you were so clean and fresh inside. And uh, then we went up the north coast of New South Wales to Byron Bay, where my brother has a house. And we just went to farmers markets and swam and like walked bush tracks. And I mean, I was asleep by 8.30 every night. And it was just like I felt completely revived. And um, Byron is amazing because it's sort of like this kind of, it's almost like the 1970s. Like when I grew up, all the kids, you go to the farmer's market, everyone's got bare feet. Children have little butterflies painted on them. There's kind of people sort of, you know, with a banjo and, uh, you know, singing. And then this kind of amazing, beautiful kind of produce. So, yeah, I feel like so, it was just like... Is that not how you normally feel about going back to Australia? Um... Uh, no, well, it's been a really interesting journey for me because I left <coughs> when I because you were born in Sydney, weren't you? I was born in yeah. Sydney, but I, um, I felt I'd been born in the wrong country. Really? Yeah, I felt like some terrible accident of fate had happened, and I'd grown up completely in the wrong country. I had freckled skin. I um, and everybody else was sort of brown, and it was a such kind of huge beach culture and. Um, I also hated the architecture. It's like really 70s or deco. It's, everything felt very coarse and too bright for me. And I got on a plane when I was 18 and I'd never really gone back to live there. And so um, in a funny way, it's, um, it's been a kind of return over the years to kind of falling in love with who I am, where I've come from, and kind of making peace with it. And actually one of the... Um, one of the, the really important things in my life is a book um, by Tim Winton called Dirt Music. So I think it was the first time I really, really fell in love with Australia through this book, which is kind of, it's really all about the Australian outback, but he loves Australia. Is this so, the book that would go into your cabinet? Yeah, he's my favourite writer, Tim Winton. He's a really beautiful writer from um, Western Australia. 
And dirt music was just this kind of love story of um, the Australian landscape. And uh, it really made me understand Australians as well, because they are very... Um, they're very different. There's a coarseness to Australians, which I found really um, almost kind of like offensive on my senses when I grew up. And now I really love the kind of honesty and the kind of parochialness of um, them. And so uh, that's a book actually that sits by my bed. And I was just really lucky because when I was there, a new book of his came out called The Shepherd's Hut. And so I read it back on the plane and so as I was kind of leaving Australia, kind of flying over the Red Desert, kind of leaving Perth and going towards Singapore, I read the kind of last page of the book and I literally wept. It's, um, yeah. So, so it's, it's almost a, like you had to go away for quite a while in order away, to appreciate yeah. it and get some distance. What was your household like growing up? Um, my house was, um, in many ways, if you kind of tell the story, it was golden. You know, I mean, I grew up um, on a harbour beach um, I never had shoes on. We had a kind of lovely big kind of tropical garden full of kind of bamboo and hibiscus and frangipani and gardenias. And um, in many ways it was a kind of, um, you know, I mean, Australia when you grow up, it's a kind of, it's very different. I mean, it's very different to how I raised my children. Um, and I've often felt quite sad about that because literally the summer holidays would come and once you're about sort of eight, your parents just pushed you out the door without any shoes and you didn't come back from like mid-December till the end of January when you went back to school. So your dad was a lawyer, I think, wasn't No, he, he was um, a television executive, yeah. And what did your mother do? My mother was an interior designer, yeah. And I've got an older sister and a younger brother. And um, it was, like, it was very fun, very free, very... Um, I grew up in the 70s, so it was very... Um, it was a very kind of, it, I mean, looking back now, I, um, I had the most kind of amazing uh, uh, teenage years. But in, in many ways, I didn't have the confidence to enjoy them. Like, I wish I could have those teenage years back with the confidence yeah, that I've got now. All, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it's quite hard. It's a very, um, it's a very body con conscious culture <clears throat> because you're in the sun all the time. So you've got very little clothes on. And uh, I felt you had to feel, I didn't have the confidence, I think, um, to kind of really enjoy it. I think you have to be very free-spirited. And I wasn't, I was kind of quite earnest and, yeah. What was the trigger that set you on the path to leaving Australia? Um, I, I've always been an obsessive reader. So, um, uh, and I had this incredible English teacher at school and we read all the classics. So I kind of really fell in love with like Tolstoy and Thomas Hardy and um, um, Guy de Maupassant all, and I would read avidly and it was all about Europe. And so I just wanted, I had this dream and you feel when you're in Australia, it's like you're kind of like right at the end of the world and you kind of see this whole other world. You're like a broken off island. And um, so I had this kind of um, dream to go to Europe um, as soon as I'd finished school. And I hadn't really been, you know, I'd kind of grown up in Australia and the first kind of port of call was Athens that I went to when I first left school and I thought it was the most exciting place I'd ever been in my life. The smells, the noise, the kind of um, sitting at the port and eating kind of calamari and inky black coffee and, um, and then I moved to Paris when I was 19. 
Have your parents ever forgiven you for not going back? It's the really fun. My father's dead, actually, and um, uh, but my mother, I was uh, my mother. It was only literally about five years ago that she stopped saying to me every time I spoke to her on the phone. So, darling, do you think you're going to come home, move home anytime soon? And the real irony of that is, I have a daughter now who's moved to America, and um, and I always think it's divine retribution for me that she's gone. And I kind of understand how my mother feels. What your name's so interesting? Where's it from? It's my surname or my yeah, your surname? I hate my surname because nobody ever pronounces it properly. Um, I think it's Welsh, actually. Yeah. And what's the what's the second thing that you would put into your cabinet? I think um, the second thing I would put into my cabinet is um, a perfectly ripe peach, and um, I would. Uh, I grew up in a in a in a, ha- in a house. Actually, my my house growing up was macrobiotic, um, so food was very important in our house. But from a kind of nutritional point of view, was that because your parents were sort of quite progressive in terms of their thinking um, about food? I think my father was very kind of progressive anyway, so he was really into. I mean, the seventies was also everybody read. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And um, there was another book about the seven stages of diet. I remember all these kind of books. It was kind of, so my father was very involved in kind of going to India and chanting and doing every Est course there ever was. And um, he met a man called Misha Kushi, who was, um, I think, uh, the founder, George Asawa and Misha Kushi were the founders of the macrobiotic movement. And so our whole family started as a normal family. But my father, when he was having his kind of midlife crisis, we all had to become macrobiotic. And um, that was quite challenging in many ways. Uh, but also, so food was, we were kind of, obs- there was an obsession about food growing up at home, but it wasn't necessarily delicious food. And, um, and I really loved cooking with my mum always. Um, and she was, was a she, very, she was a good cook? She was a very simple cook. Um, but... Everything was kind of very fresh, and um, we, we, we grew up literally, even before we were macrobiotic, just with fish and salad and mangoes for dessert. And um, so, uh, but I felt confident in the kitchen. Like I used to, it was one place I felt quite um, sure of myself. I don't, not sure of myself in a confident, it was a confidence, but it was a kind of, oh, I just feel firm in my feet kind of thing when I'm here. It feels like the right place. It's a nice place to be. And um, I went to uh, Italy, and my, fa- and my father happened to be there, uh, and he took me to this tiny little trattoria outside of Florence, and we sat, and it was the most beautiful kind of summer day, and I remember tiny wild orchids all kind of on the hills, and we had this incredible meal, and then at the end of um, the meal, just on ice, came out these kind of peaches in this bowl, and they were really cold, and you bit into them, and they were so ripe, and um, it was the first time that I had this incredible appreciation of produce. And it was just like, you can't beat this. It's kind of one perfect thing with nothing else. It was kind of the paired backness. And um, I think that really um, has always influenced my cooking. It was just like, it just struck me. Um, so, yeah, it was one kind of turning point for me, I think, that started to kind of form the way I cooked or, yeah. yeah. And that cooking sort of reached its full realisation when you opened Petersham Nurse, when you, not opened Petersham Nurseries, yeah. but you became the head chef there. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the food there and which became sort of, you became famous for it. Well, I think um, 
I think I think you're really right. Like I was um, 39 when I opened um, Petersham Nurseries, 38 or 39, and um, I'd been cooking by that stage already for almost 20 years, and I'd worked with some amazing people, and um, I, I definitely had become the sum total of all the people I'd worked for. And um, I went down to Petersham one day. I knew Gail and Francesco Bollioni, and. Uh, they'd bought this funny little garden centre that was at the end of their house and it came up for sale and it wasn't really worth anything because you could never build on it, it was in a, a kind of conservation area. And Frances I think Francesco asked me down, it had cement floors and it probably sold three geraniums, you know, on the weekend and, you know, with a garden centre you make money probably three weeks of the year so you do a rush on bulbs and kind of, you know, um, February, early March and then you have kind of big week in September kind of and um, and I think he felt that he would he wanted to offer some sort of food there because what you could do in a garden centre anywhere in England is without a restaurant licence um, you can open a cafe so it's very very simple to open a cafe because I think they understand that you need a kind of sort of and um, so I went down and um, uh, and he said what do you think I can do here and I literally I remember standing at the gates of the entrance to Petersham and it was literally like a television screen like went on my head and I thought oh my god I want to cook here and I could see a vegetable garden and um, I could see what it could be and uh, at the end when Francesco said so what do you think I should do here and I said I just want to come and cook here for the summer and he was like great I thought you I was hoping you'd say that so I took all my pots and pans um, from home and I had really little children still at the time and I was doing some writing and some teaching and I'd do some kind of private work and um, uh, and I thought, okay, well, I'll go down there for me. No one's going to come because it's not on the A to Z. And um, I'll go and no one, you don't ever get a job in, you know, June, July, August, or July, August, September, you know, because everyone's away. And I'll go back to my normal life in September. And um, uh, we started, we opened, and it literally was a kind of little garden shed and it had a green stove with like three, um, four, four hogs on it. And uh, I would get up in the morning at sort of five and I'd go and pick up some fish and I'd pick up, and no one would sell to us um, at all because they were like, um, so I didn't have any private accounts or I, um, and so I'd pick up everything in the back of my car and I'd go down there and I'd cook and we'd put a little blackboard outside and we'd do three dishes and when they ran out, they just kind of ran out. And, um, and people came and it was kind of amazing and uh, so it sort of gradually became more formal and someone called Rose Gray from the River Cafe who was so amazing rang all these suppliers and said to me you've got to supply to Sky because no one wanted you couldn't drive a truck through Richmond Park so no one wanted to get there no no linen suppliers would you know so all of our kind of April, we would wash everything in a, at night and bring them back in the morning and um, and gradually, um, over the years, uh, it kind of became a more kind of a, rest, a proper restaurant with a kind of alcohol license and stuff. Yeah. But and then it was even awarded a Michelin star in 2011. Yeah. Um, I, I trained in Paris. So when I went to live in Paris in, um, in um, 1980, mm. uh, I went there to train. And it was the time of the great French chefs. Um, and my dream would have been if you'd said to someone as a, like a, an 18-year-old um, young cook, one day you'll have a Michelin star, I would have, um, you know, it was definitely, like, it was a huge honour for me. I was completely bowled over and overwhelmed by receiving that star. And I felt really proud and really proud of everybody who worked with me. Um, 
and it was a real throwaway remark I made to a journalist. Yeah, because well, now that we're talking about it, yeah. What did you What did you say to the well, journalist? Well, I just what happened was, you know, it was. Um, what happens is with all those things, they bring good things and bad things, but it brought a lot of people who have an expectation of a Michelin star being something different than a garden centre that's not on mains gas, that has colour gas, that has two loos that you have to queue up in the rain, is covered in mud when it's dirt, you know, when it's when it's bad weather. The chairs are wobbly, the tables were wobbly, um, the food was incredibly simple. Um, and so people would come to us and, you know, after we got the Michelin star, we'd get all these letters sort of saying, call yourself a Michelin starred restaurant. And we'd go, no, we didn't. <laughs> they did. <laughs> and so what happened was it kind of took away some of the purity of it in a funny way. And although I was really, really proud, you, you know, everything good you have, there's a kind of flip side of the coin, isn't it? And so at one, um, I said to the journalist, I said, oh, God, sometimes it feels like a curse. But... Um, but I didn't mean it. And, you know, um, I just have a big mouth and I should have thought and I didn't think. And I was sort of speaking um, honestly, I suppose. It just seems so political, <clears throat> that Michelin star stuff. Do you feel like with your work now, does it, what I'm asking is, does it um, stop you getting another Michelin star? I don't think Michelin will ever award me a star after that. But um, it just seems so babyish. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, um, I think the thing is that... Um, Someone said to me the other day, um, I was talking to him, and it was, he was a young chef, and he had a restaurant, and um, I said, oh, hi, how are you? And he was like, good, and I said, how's it all going? And then he turned around to me and said something, but Sky, he said something to me, Sky, you've got something that I want that I don't have. And I was like, what could that be? Like, I'm a woman in my 50s, you're a young, very handsome twitter, I can't, can't imagine there's anything of me that you want. And he said, um, you've had a Michelin star. You've got a Michelin star, um, which I don't because it stays with the restaurant. It doesn't stay with the chef. And um, and I was I said to him, but just do the work. And like if something follows, it follows. But to do the work for an award is, is very back to front to me. And um, uh, I think you I think your priorities change as you get older. And what's important to me now um is probably not what was important to me 20 years ago and some of the things that felt really rich now kind of feel quite hollow so um what are your main priorities now um i think my really um well i suppose this comes to like um another thing in my yes. um uh in your cabinet in my cabinet <laughs> is um uh there's a woman called alice waters who has a restaurant called shapenese in berkeley in california and one of the very first cookery books I ever had was a book of hers called Fruit. It's a really beautiful, very, very simple paired back book um, on desserts, really. And um, it's in my house. It's at the restaurant still. It's, um, I still refer to it. And um, I suppose I've always, she's been the woman I've admired more than, um, I think what she does is really beautiful. She she creates very simple, very true, authentic food, and she has um, she cooks in a very female way, which is um, about nurturing and creating a beautiful environment. And um, when I first started Petersham, I had this kind of little dream. I, I never dreamt for a Michelin star. I never even thought about it. And um, but in my little in my head. I had a, a wish list of four people. I felt my life would be complete if four people came to visit me at Petersham. 
one was Alice Waters, one was a woman called Judy Rogers, who's absolutely amazing um, cook as well. Another woman called Maggie Beer, and another woman called Gay Bilson. All I, all the women, all the people I admire in my world and my work happen to be women. And um, uh, I think, in a way, that's why I left Petersham because that happened. All those four women um, over kind of that twelve-year period came to Petersham. And um, but Alice said to me, I, I, I got to know her, and we've become friends over the years. And she said to me about. Maybe eight or nine years ago, she said to me, Sky, at some point, you have to raise your eyes above the stove and look at the bigger picture. And that really resonated um, with me. So now what is, more, is very important to me is kind of a lot of issues like food waste, sustainability. Um, at the moment, um, when, I, when I opened, one of the things I'm the proudest of actually is when we opened Spring. Um, so Spring, just to yeah. ma make it clear to anyone who might not know, is your restaurant that you opened uh, in Somerset House on the Strand in London. Yeah, um, in 2004. And I think it really embodies what you were saying just now, which I found really interesting about the feminine approach to mm. food and cooking. Um, so tell us about the restaurant what it is before we go on to talk about um, the environmental stuff okay so um so when i left petersham uh in 2011 um i really i didn't want to give up restaurants i mean i am a restaurant junkie <coughs> so i hope to go to my grave working in a what restaurant are your favorite restaurants just off, off um on the side uh, gosh and i love the river cafe um and i suppose it's kind of would be a go-to I think sitting outside on a Sunday in the River Cafe is one of life's kind of real joys. Um, I love, in London, I love what James Lowe does at Lyles. Um, I love what Merlin Johnson does at Clipstone and Portland. Uh, I love... Um, did you go to any restaurants in Sydney that you I hadn't did, been to before that you liked? Yeah, I went to a, a beautiful restaurant called Fred's. Um, a girl called Danielle um, Alvarez cooks there and she cooks all over an open flame. It was very beautiful and another restaurant called St. Peter's, which is a really beautiful just fish restaurant. Um, you really are a restaurant junkie. <laughs> <laughs> I do, um, I, yeah, I love my community and um, I really enjoy, um, I'm, I'm not a fine dining, I don't like fine dining. Yeah, so that's how, so coming back to spring, yeah, so that's, it's very uh, considered and lovely, yeah. but it isn't what you'd class as that fine dining experience in that kind of stiff well it was really way, hard it? because it's the most um I was really I really wanted to feel very relaxed and kind of laid back and I actually my sister was designed it um and we worked together on it I mean and she was amazing and really kind of took she's an interior designer what's and, her name she's called Bryony Fitzgerald and um, I looked for lots of designers here and, and met with lots of people and I'd keep on speaking to her on the phone. She was like, no, I know. Oh, yeah, you just want that. Blah, blah, you know. And I was like, please come over and do it with me. And she's like, I can't come over. I don't know anyone in London. I haven't got all my kind of... But where, does she, where does she live? She looked at, she's based in Sydney. But I wanted a, a watercolour is what I wanted. And I wanted something very light and very um, airy. I like, I like um, space and air between everything and I like um, paired backness so less um, I always think it's the courage of leaving everything out instead of kind of piling everything in and um, but she kept on telling me when um, I was like it's got to be relaxed it's got to be relaxed and she's like this is a very grand room 
you know, it's got 24 foot high ceilings, it's got very kind of majestic windows, it's a very kind of um, square kind of like um, beautifully proportioned room. And so to kind of like put things, to make it very, you could go very grand in that room, as you can imagine. So it was, I think the challenge was to keep it very light and very simple. And, um, and it's still a big room, it's still a grand room in a way. So uh, I hope, um, I like to eat with my elbows on the table. I, I like, um, I, I'm very interested in the power of food to bring people together to create an experience. And I also feel that we're one element, the food is one element of a beautiful and memorable meal. I looked for a site for a really long time. I wanted to be in the West End because I wanted bright lights, you know, big city, because I'd been so bucolic for so long. I kind of wanted a complete change. And I also wanted to, um, I wanted, it was a bit of, it was a bit like I imagine if you'd written a book or you'd, you'd done an album and it was like, really successful it's like do I have a second album in me or do I have a second book of any <laughs> yeah, value in me second album yeah yeah and it felt very wrong to try and imitate Petersham you know that that was owned by the Bollionis it wasn't mine and so it was to try and create another identity that was also a part of me um, and we found this I we found um, the other thing was that I went to Petersham every day and I was bowled over by how beautiful it was. I kind of like arrive early in the morning and the sun was coming up and I go, oh my, this is the most beautiful place in the world that anyone could work. And I wanted another beautiful place. I didn't want to not go to a beautiful place. So I looked for two years for a site actually. And then we found Somerset House. And I do, when I walk into that courtyard at Somerset House, I do think, gosh, I've been really lucky. I've had two really very different, but very beautiful places where I get to go to work every day. I really love the, in your, in your rest, in spring, I love the a sort of entrance area where you can sit and have drinks. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah. I just think that's just, it yeah. just makes you feel so glamorous. It does it? Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Um, and as part of spring, you have been working on this environmental initiative. Yeah. Well, we've done a few things and I think, um, I think it's really important um, to be more, I mean, you know, I really took Alice's words seriously. I mean, I would take anything she said, you know, um, very seriously, I think, or with bated breath. But, um, uh, you know, I definitely, it, it sounds really strange now, but when we started cooking at Petersham in 2004, people weren't talking about um, locals, uh, sustainable or seasonal. Um, now, like, uh, seasonal is like, you know, I don't think there's a restaurant when you ask them how, how they cook, they wouldn't, they'd say, oh, we cook seasonally. But that, it really was, you know, people were eating strawberries at Christmas and, you know, um, truffles in summer and, you know, and, um, and so we just, um, we didn't do it for any other reason that we had a small vegetable garden there. And when you went and you saw, you planted your feet in the soil and you saw what was growing there, you couldn't it just seemed ridiculous or not right. It would be like wearing a jumper in, you know, July or... And, um, uh, and when I left Petersham, I was also very aware that my inspiration came from what was around me and I wanted to create something else that could inspire me. And um, I'd been to California and I'd spent quite a lot of time with quite a few restaurants that worked directly with farms. So Chez Panisse, um, Alice has worked with a guy called Bob Kennard at Kennard's farm for 40 years. And I went to see Thomas Keller, who works with the farm, and another man called David Kinch, who works with a farm called Love Apple. 
And I wanted to have the idea of finding a small farm that was biodynamic, um, which is kind of organics on steroids, um, <laughs> and uh, to be able to sustain them. So to make a commitment to them, to form a relationship where we would um, commit to sustaining and taking all their produce. <clears throat> and I found um, uh, a farm called Fern Vero in the Black Mountains of Herefordshire that was run by a woman called Jane Scotter. And I wrote to her, and she used to sell her wares at, um, at uh, Barra and then Maltby Street and um, Spa Terminus. And I wrote to her and I said, would you be interested in supplying me? And I, Jane is a very fierce and ferocious kind of artist, actually. And I thought, she's just going to tell me to sod off. And she wasn't <laughs> interested. And she said, well, we can have a conversation. And so I went up and I saw her. And uh, we made, um, we... Uh, we've been working together for four years and it's one of my proudest um, I, I feel so good about committing to 16 hectares of good clean soil. So she works as a biodynamic farmer? She's a, an amazingly beautiful um, biodynamic farmer and she grows um, not, about 92% of everything that we, um, we um, serve at Petersham and cook with is from Jane. And have we? I feel like we've lost the thread of the cabinet a bit. Have, yeah. Sorry. How many things have we spoken about now? The, I think there are so many interesting a things. Peach, the Tim Winton book, uh, Shapenese fruit. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing um, that uh, I definitely have to have in the cabinet is a nail varnish. Okay. And it's because I always paint my feet, and it's really important to me because my hands look horrible. <laughs> And I feel very unglamorous. So my work is like hair scraped back, kind of maybe if I've got any makeup on, it's halfway down my face. Um, I wear a kind of uniform that feels like pajamas, which is kind of heaven. You know, you go into work and you put your pajamas on because you've got really baggy chef's trousers and an oversized chef's jacket on. And so sometimes I just look down at my feet and I go, oh, I am I like... They look nice. And, uh, <laughs> which so, colour? Which is your colour? Which is your? Um, I tend to like. I don't experiment very much, but I either do like tomato red in the summer, or I kind of do a darker, um, uh, kind of sort of blood red in the winter. And I, uh, it's the one thing I do to look after myself. I go. I love going and having a pedicure, and uh, and then I look down at my feet and I go, okay, there's something that's just okay. I've spent a lot of time feeling very unglamorous and very. Um, I mean, inside I feel very female, and on the outside I feel very scruffy. How do you feel about working in that environment? Because it's incredibly high stress yeah. and long, irregular hours, yeah. or unsociable hours, I should say. For me, um, d definitely life is work and work is life. I mm. don't think I'm going to work. I, lo I really love what I do. I love the team. I love working. I feel so blessed to work with lots of young people who are much faster, much more... Um, very often much more creative than I am and um, it's quite addictive like I couldn't work in an office and um, I still dream about food when I go to bed is there, is there is there a divide between male and female chefs and is there a sexism that exists there or is that something that you haven't come across I think um, my, my first answer would to you would be oh no like you know like I, I don't take any prisoners, so I don't feel like inadequate in a men's world or and it is a very male dominated world um, definitely and 
but I wouldn't have said that when I was 18 and working because I worked in France after before I came to live in London and um, for a long time I was really intimidated and I've grown in strength. What do you think it was that enabled you to overcome that? I think um, I th- I've definitely I was saying to someone the other day um, they said to me oh god you know you're so like it's um you seem so well and you look you know they were being very nice and I said um it's really strange I am you know I remember I turned 50 um a couple of years ago and first of all I felt incredibly grateful to get there and then secondly I I was very aware that I was probably coming into the last third of my life you know how life goes on forever when you're very young and it didn't feel like that anymore and I suppose that's the urgency for me now to kind of do things like Fern Vero or to, we do the scratch menu, which yes. is food waste. So yeah. tell, explain the scratch menu. Um, so this is part of the Sustainable, sustainable Food yeah. Initiative that you're, you've become very interested in and passionate about. Yeah, well, I, I sort of, um, I realised just working with the farm. Firstly, there were so many beautiful elements to the farm that, uh, like the uh, that we would find that we weren't using, you'd sort of pare everything back, and so we started kind of thinking, what can we do with the outer leaves of cauliflower, and what can we do with the stems of the asparagus or the stalks of the broccoli, or um, or the kind of stems of the chima, and um, and then I started looking into food waste, and um, I, I realised that forty um, percent of all food ever grown it never makes the shop shelf, and that's not what you discard from your fridge. Um, and I um, and I thought let's let's also I'm very um, I was very aware that Spring was an expensive restaurant and in many ways I don't apologise for that because I feel that I really believe in paying people properly so I believe in paying Jane properly I we only use sustainable day um, day boats for our fish and fish that is sustainable and you, I believe in allowing that I really want those things to continue so we have to pay them properly and so. I'm happy to pay it and I'm happy to pass it on to you. But um, I really wanted it to be more accessible. So we created a £20 menu where if you were happy and you had no dietaries and you were happy to take potluck, come and eat with us between 5.30 and 7 o'clock and we'll serve you a meal um, uh, that is based on food that we would otherwise discard. So uh, Has it been popular? It's been so popular. It's been really nice, and it's been really creative uh, for because we've learned to kind of re-mill. We make everything at spring, so um, we've uh, yesterday's sourdough that we've made. We've learned to re-mill back into flour to make cakes with, or turn into dumplings. Or um, and what I've the other thing that I've done, which I is really nice, is I've handed it on to the younger chefs who work with me. So I'm very controlling about the menu, and uh, but I say to them, you can do scratch come to me, tell me what you're going to do, but it's yours. And that's been really nice to give them some freedom and to kind of find their feet and spread their wings. Um, uh, yeah, so we've loved that. And then this year we've gone single-use plastic-free. So uh, we worked out that in terms of cling film we were using... So give me an example of the single-use single, single use plastic that you might use in okay, the Okay, so when, when I, I learnt, I went to a talk... Um, by someone called Sean Sutherland at a plastic um, she has something called a plastic planet and uh, um, I, I thought I mean I knew that plastic was in 
a kind of like not a good thing. And I thought, oh God, the 5P pack, that's great, you know. And then, but I didn't realize how um, catastrophic the situation with plastic is in the world. And I thought, um, I saw a plastic ocean on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, but literally the ocean looks like a garbage dump. And um, beautiful animals are eating plastic um, because they can't distinguish between food and what's fish or jellyfish and what's a plastic bag. Mm. And that the thorax, which uh, bleed from a plastic into our food chain, is also incredibly bad for us. So I thought what we could do, and I became swamped and overwhelmed and really depressed. And I was like, we've got to get rid of plastic. And then you look everywhere and there's plastic everywhere. So Sean actually said to me, just go single use. So single use is a plastic bag, a garbage bag, a, a straw. It's not the kind of computer that has the back with the plastic on it. So we identified sort of um, five things that we could change. And we started looking into it. And uh, so we got rid of straws last year. And um, then we got rid of cling film at the beginning of this year. And we, we worked out that a year we used 3,600 kilometers of cling film because we worked out, we looked at what we bought and how big the rolls were. And um, what do you use instead of cling film? Uh, we use bees wrap, <coughs> which is made from, um, bees. it's called bees wrap which you can buy um, and it's actually in Australia it was amazing it was everywhere and uh, it's made out of um, wax beeswax and they kind of uh, they're incredible they last for about 12 months you can wash them and reuse them and it's it smells delicious it smells like that's amazing because actually it's the smell of cling film as well which is awful, awful. this smells divine it smells like sweet honeyed um, beeswax and you just literally fold it and you can squish it with your hands and it will seal things um, and the straws, we use a kind of vegetable compost um, uh, that looks just like plastic, but actually is made from veg compost. And uh, we used to have pla little ice cream cups, which I used to love, which I thought were paper, but then I found out they were wrapped, sort of brushed in plastic. So now we use, we've had all these little ceramic ones made. And we used to have um, a brand of soap in the kitchen, uh, in the bathrooms that is beautiful but is made from plastic. So we had ceramic bottles made and we sourced. So it's a kind of ongoing thing but and we, uh, we um, what we did was we thought we have to get everybody on board so we organised for Plastic Ocean to be filmed on a Sunday at school uh, at uh, spring and we had beer and pizzas and we nominated ambassadors from every section so everybody's on board with it um, and it's it's really nice. It, makes you feel like you're doing something together. And it's really nice to have something every year that you can, like last, the two years ago we did Scratch, which is the, the food waste menu. And uh, it just feels like we're moving forward as opposed to just um, uh, staying the same, I think. So cool. And with regards to your cabinet, have we put everything in it now? Or is everything there anything in, else you wanted to add? Um, I suppose except for, um, I think I've had everything except for um, uh, Agnes Martin, who's the artist, who, um, who I saw her show at the Guggenheim last year in New York, and it's kind of sat with me ever since. And um, her, I find her work so beautiful. She um, painted in the desert, and she was schizophrenic, I don't know, so peaceful and happy and positive and spiritual. and. Um, um, she has so much space around her work and it, it's kind of how I see my my work in a way. I think um, 
what I do. And I, I say to everyone else, all the time in the restaurant, it's like, we're so lucky we give, give, get to give pleasure. We're not parking inspectors. You know, we get to give pleasure and uh, bring happiness if we have the right attitude. And I love her work because it's so, it's, it's so elegant, but it's really on the sunny side of life, uh, which I really like. Do you feel like you are on the sunny side of life? I try to be, yeah. I mean, I can be super negative as well, and that is part of me that I really don't like. But um, I try to be, yeah, I say to myself every morning, be kind, be nice. Yeah, and I think gratitude is really important. I always say thank you at night. And I'm not, I don't believe in, any, or if I do believe in something, I don't know what it is. But I do think that gratitude is, as I've gotten older, I've realised that's really important. I've been incredibly lucky, yeah. Thank you so much. That's okay. For talking to us, it's been lovely. Thank Thanks very you. much. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>